I'm Alex. And I'm Matt, and welcome back to the show. Our guest this week for a special episode is Louis Palou. Louis is a photographer who has spent lots of time in Afghanistan, specifically in the south, and also Guantanamo Bay in Mexico. He's been published almost everywhere, including, to name a few, The Economist, The New Yorker, and Time Magazine. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including a Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting Grant, and was the 2011-2012 Bernard Schwartz Fellow with the New America Foundation for an in-depth study on the Mexican drug war. Um, yeah, this episode was uh, it's slightly different from our usual format, um, uh, in part in that uh, you, Matt, have been deposed. Uh, and we have someone else taking your place uh, just for this episode. Uh, that person is uh, Suzanne Schroeder, um, who is on Twitter with a unrememberable Twitter handle. I can't think of it. S-U-E-S-5-7, I think. Um, and uh, Suzanne has been kind of interested and in following uh, Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, and we uh, know each other from uh, from Twitter. And she, she suggested uh, Louis is an interesting uh, guest um, uh, on the basis of some of our previous guests. Uh, so she's kind of joining in, um, having this discussion with Louis. Uh, and we kind of get into the weeds a bit on um, his work, uh, particularly in southern Afghanistan, where we both spent uh, a lot of time and we talk about that uh, a fair amount. But without further ado, uh, here's the episode. So I guess, I mean, we can um, kind of start start from the beginning. How did you kind of end up where you were, if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Um, now, when you say where you were, there's lots of words. So are you talking well, I, I have, or Kandahar? Yeah. Well, yeah, let's, I mean, let's, you know, how, how did you reach the point where you, have you been a photographer all your life? Yeah. Um, how did you get, how did you get involved in that? How did you, how did you end up doing okay. stuff like, like the stuff that you're doing at the moment? I, I would say, I think I was, uh, how old was I? Maybe 16 uh, I had, I'd always been interested in art and I had failed religion. I went to Catholic school. I was forced to go to a Catholic all boys school. And in this summer school, I mean, no one fails religion. And you know, I, I grew up in an Italian immigrant community in Canada. And in this summer school, uh, I, I met a girl and she was taking summer school cause she wanted to. So she was taking a photography course and she gave me a book by uh, the British photographer, Don McCullen. Uh, who had worked for the Sunday Times, and he mo- covered mostly conflict and disasters. Um, and I saw this book, and I immediately connected to it. And I guess looking back, I had no clue why it it it, it made deep emotions in me come out. And, and I don't want to say I was excited because no one's excited about seeing you know images of war, but um, it, it really moved me. And I realized looking back that. Having grown up on a a street in a community of Italian immigrants who had all born, been born before the Second World War, I had grown up hearing stories of of from of horror, trauma, and violence from the Second World War. So I think, uh, in retrospect, it's something I've just really had an epiphany about. Uh, my whole childhood and everything I am, my identity, is based on uh, storytelling. Uh, from my parents and all the the parents on the street of all my my childhood friends, and violence. And I think that when I saw those photographs, it was the first time I saw something that connected to what I'd been hearing about. And I think that it it goes to that root core for many of us who always want to understand where we come from and how we're made. And sort of, I think that anything connected to our parents, at least in my case, 
was very, very important to me. So from, from that point, I, I took a photography course and uh, I immediately connected to photography that really had to do with uh, the human condition, mostly around sort of quoting one of my photo editors that I worked with, sort of the, the darker side of things, you know, war, strife, um, disease. And uh, I immediately uh, started working on things that were like long term. I, I started freelancing. So I went to high school. I took photography and art. I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design in Toronto. And uh, once I graduated, I started freelancing. And, and the new cycle was something in terms of freelancing for newspapers as a photographer was something that was you know novel. So at first I enjoyed it, but very quickly I felt like the take a photograph on Monday and have it published on Tuesday cycle of news was not something that I that engaged me very much. And I wanted to do long-term projects. And when I say long-term, I had no idea what long-term meant when I started, but long-term projects for me are five to 12 years. So I'll, I'll pick a subject that really calls out to me sort of emotionally, psychologically, and uh, I'll start photographing it. And the first project I worked on was on the mines in northern Ontario and Quebec. And for anyone who's listening, um, this is one of the richest resource bases in the world. And there are social political uh, issues tied to all those things, you know, labor, uh, industrial disease, uh, economics, stock exchanges, world economies, uh, you know, worker movements. And uh, again, it, it at the time, I had no idea that all the projects that sort of called out to me, if I could use that that term, uh, were related to my parents. My parents were poor working class immigrants from Italy. My dad was a stonemason, and my mom was a seamstress. And uh, I think I, I really realize now that all the projects that I've done that have been sort of, let me call it self-assigned, because a lot of my work, I, I don't usually get assignments to start them. I do it on my own and then I, I try and edit things and have them published after I've, I've done my sort of own own view of them and, and long-term experience on them. So uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I photographed in the mines for about 12 years and uh, during that time I got hired as a staff photographer at the Globe and Mail and that was a very great experience in terms of learning editing and sort of the craft of journalism because I kind of taught myself that side of it. And, uh, you know, I always wanted to cover a conflict, but it was kind of like a fog. I think when people ask me, oh, why do you cover a war? And I, I for many years, I have to say I had this looking back, it was a little bit of a disingenuous default answer, like, oh, it, it's very important. Of course it's important. It's, you know, there are, there are very important issues, great issues that, that involve life and death and that we should be, you know, I, I want to communicate this, but really there's nothing personal on that. And I, I just felt like over the years, I really personally, I didn't really tell anyone, I didn't have really have a clear answer that satisfied me. And uh, what I really realize is that it's all connected to my parents in my roots and everything I heard as a child, you know, I, I remember one story that really stuck with me is uh, a very close friend of my father's I was a little older than him. My dad was born in 1939. Uh, he was older. He got drafted in the Italian army and he at one point in the forties switched sides to the allies and he was thrown in a prisoner of war camp. And uh, I remember as a child, I used to be told these stories where in the prison of war camp, this, this man I'd grown to know as a child and admired 
Uh, the guard camp guards used to throw out food for the dogs and the, he used to have to fight the dogs for the food. And I think, I think sort of subconsciously, it probably was a very traumatized, you know, I always visualize images in my head of stories people told me, but as an adult, after covering war, I realized the, the extreme horror of what that scene must've been like. And I think that these stories really, uh, uh, sort of fermented themselves deep in my subconscious and are completely behind who I am and what I do. And, and it's, I have to say it's very, it's a big relief because going out and seeing some of the things I do and witnessing and documenting, not having a purpose in those situations is a very, very big problem. Do you feel, I mean, you, you say this, this all kind of uh, traces back to, to your parents. Do you think the, um, your decision to um, do a lot of stuff outside, um, you know, abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that 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 also traces back to this as well? Because I mean, you know, you could just, you know, exist and and, and you know there is conflict, there is violence and stuff um, mm-hmm. domestically as well. You know, what 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 was it that, that kind of forced you to look look outside? Well, I think um, let's see. The first real like conflict, like open war, so to speak, would would have been in Afghanistan, ma- mainly Kandahar. Actually, uh, I, I was working at the Globe and Mail, and uh, I had heard that Canada was gonna go on a combat mission. And as a Canadian, you know that that sounds odd because Canada hadn't been on some like a real official combat mission since the Korean War. So. It kind of very much is a momentous moment. And I wanted to go documenting. When I got there, I realized, you know, this has to be one of the one of my long-term project situations. It couldn't be it couldn't be just because I wanted to go cover the news or some historical patriotic thing. It was more sort of, wow, what's happening to what's happening to our country? And uh when I got there, it really had nothing to do with that. When I got there, I saw these children and I, I thought is is that what my dad looked like? You know, like, you know, I, I heard stories about my dad playing soccer and they used to, during the war, they would take their socks off and put one sock in another and another and another until this ball of socks was a soccer ball because they were so poor. So I think immediately I started thinking, well, what, what, what is this experience that I'd heard about my entire life pretty much? At the, at, it pretty much was told around the dinner table. And uh, I just felt like I was seeing it there. It was about sort of, it was it was not about Afghan or Italian or Canadian. It became about a human experience that I felt like I was connected to. And so I, I quit my job at the Globe and Mail and I just started going to Kandahar as much as I could and staying as long as I could. So, and then when you go to a war, there are many, many layers of, of things that interest you as, as someone who's a, you know, the kind of documentary photographer I am is like, okay, who are the insurgents? Why are the insurgents fighting? How, how is, how are the, the NATO and the sort of coalition using that government term? Who are they? What's their purpose? How are they getting anything done? And the most important thing is what's happening to the civilians. Are the civilians a part of what's going on? And if they are, you know, usually, Civilian casualties are pretty much a part of almost any conflict and how many are there and what does the land look like? What's the history of the land? So all these kind of deeper layers started happening. And I suddenly had this massive series of questions and explorations I wanted to take. And so I just kind of went from there. And, you know, I mean, Alex, you've been to Kandahar. You know how 
know, just going from one village to another is, can be very, very complicated. So, uh, so I, I went there, you know, on and off pretty frequently for about, and sometimes for long periods of time over five years. Could, could you say a little bit about, um, well, about that time in, in Kandahar, yeah. what did you, um, firstly, I guess, you know, what, um, uh, what kind of work, um, mm -hmm. were you, were you producing there was a particular yeah. type of portrait or, or, or thing that you ended up kind of gravitating towards and then kind of what did you learn from your experience there you might have to remind me about a couple of those last questions but I'll, I'll start from the beginning um i think when i got there it was just like a massive sort of uh assault of information you know such a foreign place from what i'm used to i mean i'd traveled a lot i've been i'd been to pakistan india i've been to a lot of different places beforehand but it was one thing to hit Kabul first, and, and I, I went to Kabul and I did a, a lot of sort of independent reporting on my own. And then, at the time, it was two thousand six. You know, I, I had arrived sort of in what I call the second war. You know, the first one was sort of the revenge for nine eleven, and then dealing with the sort of post Al Qaeda. You know, I don't think the Taliban were quite defeated. The, the, the Taliban kind of just went away for a while and then just came back. And that's kind of when I arrived. They had just sort of launched. I mean, I guess it started way before 2006. The, the, the history of what happened there is, is much more complex than what's, I think, in most of the media. Um, and uh, at first it was like learning all the basics, like you know, the history alone of Kandahar is so fascinating and so engaging, you know, I mean, here's a city founded by Alexander the Great in 330 BC. There's so many, many more layers about it, you know, Babur and uh, Genghis Khan. I mean, there are very few cities that, that have all these layers. And then some of the more modern layers, like, you know, sort of seat of power and birthplace of the Taliban, you know, Tarnak farms, you know, the headquarters for Al Qaeda. And there's so many kind of things that I wanted to see, but the security situation made it especially for what i do as a photographer um quite complicated i mean if, if you wanted to write you could pretty much just travel around and you know aside from interviews in public stay under the radar but once you pull out a very big professional camera you've pretty much revealed that you're not from there and uh, uh i was i was fortunate that i was able to grow a very big beard dress locally and i could grow some pretty serious beards uh, and until I pulled my camera out, I was pretty safe, but my, my biggest concern wasn't me. It was my driver, my fixer, because of course they're seen by some parties, there, um, guilt by association. So I was always careful mostly cause I, I could leave, but my, my local driver fixer could not. So I started traveling around and, uh, I think the, you know, there's just too many things. Kandahar is not just, uh, it's not just the city the the, the districts are this, and I'm always attracted more to the things that are the unknown, sort of like you know, the, the, those layers of history can learn pretty quick. But I just felt like there was a lot of reporting on Kandahar City, but very few people were actually able to go out into the districts like Argandab, Zari, especially Panjwe, these fascinating century-old uh, villages that, that had seen pretty much every, every almost every empire in the history of, of the West and the East actually. And, uh, even just sort of the, how things were like the irrigation systems, there were centuries old. And, uh, 
at first I was able to sometimes go out on my own. And, and then as the years progressed and as NATO moved more and more troops into the area, the Taliban moved more fighters into the area. Then there were a lot of tribal conflicts that were misunderstood by sort of Western troops. And it became like sort of a big hornet's nest. It became very, very complicated for someone like me to even walk around. For, in, in terms of all sides, I've been shot at by everybody um, sooner or later, ridiculously. But um, So I had to start sort of building methods to physically that, – that was the most complicated part – physically be in places that I wanted to be in to take photographs – and get 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 out safely, and uh, you know, I, I I wanted to avoid being that photographer who only went to some place because there's lots of shooting going on or bang bang as they call it, you know, in, the, in among some photographers. I, I would research certain villages, like say, like Hausi Madad, you know, very important sort of places in the history of Kandahar, and and strategically and geographically what they meant, you know, Sangasar. Um, Kolk, Pashmul, um, especially going down to Panjway, you know, Mushan, uh, Zangabad. Th- these are just fascinating places uh, that I wanted to get into. But unfortunately, one of the only ways you can get into those places after about 2007 was going on embeds with the military. Um, but the great thing is, is, you know, w- with embed rules, the Afghan army, which was attached to every unit, Western unit in the area, the embed rules didn't apply to them. So I kind of used that as a window into sort of Afghans from another part of Afghanistan in this Southern part where there were sort of two different sort of two clashes of cultures. I would sort of feel, I feel like they were bringing these troops from the North down into the South. Mm-hmm. It was like an immediate conflict just between Afghans themselves. So I started doing that and I would do a lot of research sort of on geographically and I would do it in pieces. I would travel around in pieces and then I would try and find windows where I would leave the military base and uh, go out on my own and try and fill in the holes that the embed system wasn't allowing me to see. So that's that's sort of how I did it physically and it, very, very complex. Like there are places I want to photograph. I mean, it's one thing to go write about it, but, you know, again, I need time to look around, wait for the right light, you know, say I want to go into Kandahar city and do stories on, you know, the shrine of the cloak of the prophet Muhammad. I mean, it's a very open public place, lots of different players and, and, and agents from all different sides who have different interests in what's going on there. They don't know who I am. And this becomes the big problem is, am I a threat? Am I just a journalist? Uh, you know, never mind the Taliban. There's just other criminals uh-huh. there that just want to kidnap me and sell me or ransom me off. So, you know, like three cell phones, I had three cell phones where I'd, text information off one, three different phone plans, email, you know, then phone information on the other and text. So there's like what I was doing with my local contacts would be broken up over three phones. Um, then, uh, uh, you know, arrive with a red car, leave with, a, you know, leaving in a white or a yellow and white Toyota is the best getaway because that's pretty much every car in the city. Um, so it was lots of planning and, and I, it, it took a long time to get, you know, sometimes it would take me two months to get a single photo I like to add to my edit. And that's what kind of took a long time is lots of logistical planning. I could plan something out logistically and arrive and it's like, oh my God, the sun is in my lens. You know, it'd be ridiculous. Like, and I'd be like, okay, I got to come back to this building another time or, uh, 
I'm on my way there and there's a suicide bombing aimed at something else. And then there's pretty much, you know, you can, unless you have to drive through districts, there's only like one main road, as you know, through Kandahar city. So once something happens on that highway, you're kind of like bottlenecked into the city. So, you know, uh, one simple problem could throw you off three, four days. Then, you know, staggering things, uh, never go to the same place, you know, two days in a row, depending on what was going on or the climate of safety or security, I'd have 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or two and, uh, in, in single spots publicly. But, you know, uh, I, I got to say the one regret I have is, is that I, maybe it's not a regret. It's more a hope. I want, I want to go into districts when there's no war, like no fighting, everybody with the guns are gone. And go hang out with villagers in like Panjwain Zari, mm-hmm. just, just just to do to say like do a story on grape cultivation. The, the problem is is that those areas are so so highly contested by more parties than just the Taliban. That uh, you know at this point you know I'm always kind of got my finger in the pulse, waiting for some kind of like quieter period to go out there. But you know a very very complicated area to work around physically as a photographer. Mm-hmm. So I. I did a lot of still photos and I shot a lot of videos. You know, what ended up happening is, you know, there's a lot of uh, criticism of sort of how the war was covered. And I, I, I'm glad there should always be criticism because people should always be held to account. But um, what what ended up happening uh, that made things complicated for sort of, let's say the Canadians who are covering Kandahar, because everybody kind of forgot that Kandahar existed after a while especially when Iraq took over the headlines is uh, the TV pool, you know, the the three networks kind of combined to make a TV pool and they would rotate each network each month to share the costs of, of insurance, et cetera, et cetera. While in Kandahar and they were based out of Kandahar field. They went on an operation, a Canadian military operation somewhere way far West than Zari and the vehicle hit an anti-tank mine, blew off the CBC cameraman's foot and then, you know, there was this huge backlash in terms of of, of ex- producers and, and the network saying, okay, no more going out. And that was 2007, and that was kind of the beginning of uh, a, a, a lot of hesitation and a lot of restriction from within media companies because of the worry of safety for journalists going out and covering. You also had some, some Canadians who were kidnapped. Well, that was slightly later, but... That was slightly later, yeah. But, you know, I have to say, when you look at, uh, you know, in retrospect over the years, Kandahar has to be, you know, and I don't want to speak all badly about Kandahar because um, there are a lot of really beautiful things I saw there too. But in terms of respective of covering the war from like when I was there, 06 to 2010, uh, a lot of journalists were killed there or seriously wounded. Like I think almost more than any other part of the country. I haven't looked at Helmand, which is, historically sort of part of the greater Kandahar region before they made official mm-hmm. provinces. But it was pretty bad. Like I think in 2010, after I had left, one New York Times photographer had his legs blown off. And then another photographer went to do humanitarian photography had both his legs and an arm blown off in January. And uh, I mean, the list goes on quite long. So, but at that time, 2007, and, and there was this backlash, like it's getting dangerous. Yeah. Melissa Fung was kidnapped. She was Canadian. But it was up in Kabul, and it was in a refugee camp. Yeah. Um, but but nevertheless, there was always this this huge sort of reaction whenever something happened, and it was like stop covering. 
the way you're doing it. And it frustrated a lot of people on the ground. And so I, I was freelance. I could do whatever I wanted. And I was going out a lot. And I was going sort of into the sort of the deeper parts of Zari and sort of the into the Horn of Panjue. These are districts west of Canada City, for those who don't know. Kind of like what became major sanctuaries, so to speak, for the insurgency. And, uh, of course, this attracted a lot of NATO attention at the time. And uh, a lot of fighting and violence erupted because of it. But uh, I said, look, give me a video camera because I was frustrated to hear they were going to cover, be covering. TV Pool's going to do like live hits from Kandahar Field, you know, was, which is a reporter standing in front of an armored vehicle at a base. Uh, that's no criticism to the reporter, but it, this is the decision of the networks. And I said, give me a video camera. And Graham Smith Global Mail reporter gave me a video camera and, and he encouraged me to shoot some video. And I went out and I went on a series of uh, what the military, I followed the military on what they called clearance operations, which I think the translation back to Vietnam area is like search and destroy missions. And uh, I got to go in a lot of really fascinating villages like Sia Choi, Sangasar, Kolk, uh, out to Mushan, Talukan, you know, Zangabad. Very you know, sort of important place to understand in terms of where where the Taliban sort of cells of fighters existed because uh, they, they existed amongst the population. So it made for a very sort of complex situation in terms of civilians being caught in the middle. Um, it was funny when I got out there, I realized that all the most of the Canadian bases had been built on top of old Soviet bases. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I was like watching this almost unbelievable repetition of history. Like let's build our base on top of the last, you know, foreign invader that was here. And, you know, there were some bases where I would look outside the base. I'm like, Hey, what's that? Looks like some ancient ruin. Oh, that's Alexander the great's old fortress. And I'm like, you know, here we have, you know, almost 2000 years of, of being in the same place for an army who all in some way meet the same fate in some ways. It, 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 they, they, they're always, they always end up leaving. So um, I don't mean to be cliche and mention sort of, I don't want to get into the graveyard of empires, but <laughs> it, it, it was, it was sort of those, mo- it was like catch 22 where it's the absurdity of war, you know, like I always felt like catch 22 captured the absurdity of war. Whenever there's a very serious war movie and there's no absurdity in it or laughter, it's, it, it's not a real war film. I find mm. Because absurdity and war are go hand in hand, and uh, uh, it, it it just felt like I was on this surreal trip, you know, a lot of times. And uh, so I went out with the video camera, searching a lot of video. And thank God, when I came to the TV pool with this video, and there was some fighting on there, you know, they're always looking for a firefight video of daily village life. They weren't so interested in, unfortunately, but. Um, I, uh, I, I said, look, I'll sell you this, but I own the copyright. And, they, and they're like, no, no, no. I'm like, well, then I'm going to sell it to someone else. And they're like, no, 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 no. Okay, well, well, you own the copyright. I said, you'll get six months of exclusive sort of broadcast. And I just started doing that over the years. And I just started taking the video camera out as much as possible. And I went out as much as possible on my own. And I went out as much as possible as I could with uh, – Military units, not because of the military unit, but because of the place they were in. That could give me safe passage to get to sort of villages and talk to civilians in areas that were completely inaccessible for me and my fixer. I remember sometimes I'd tell my fixer, hey, 
can we go to Ergendob? He goes, do you want to die? You know, he says, because I can't go there. I'll get my head cut off. You know, and this is at the time, you know, these places have varying degrees of, uh, of security. And uh, I'd be like, hey, can we go to Zangabad? You know, any, anyone who knows where Zangabad is know, can start laughing now because it, it, very, very complicated. You can be hit, hit about 15 IEDs or landmines on the way driving there. But, um, yeah, so I would research areas that I wanted to get into. And, uh, you know, this is where I first came across your name, Alex. And I started looking at different people doing different things. And I was trying to accumulate as much historical stuff as I could. Where the Durand Line was, where Spin Boldak is in relation to the Reg Desert, and you know there's the Hindu Kush and where the mountains are, and you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think the most fascinating thing I got was I found this map. It's probably a guest map of Alexander the Great's invasion route, and all the fighting that Alexander the Great first faced is in this sort of like upside down triangle. Now, if you take that triangle. And you lay it on top of where all the fighting that the Canadians did and then later the Americans west of Kandahar City in the, in the, the agricultural districts. It's almost the exact same triangle. Uh-huh. And so here is the history of a culture who has sort of understands the geography is, is very much – it is their country too. You know, I'm sure there are some foreign fighters, but for the most part – they're fighting in their country and they've been doing it for centuries. And I had this epiphany where I'm like, Oh my God, we've been doing, we, the West have been doing, or I guess the East, when you include the Soviets, people have been invading that area and fighting in that little triangle and everybody's left every time. And I think that, uh, people were talking about peace talks with the Taliban, you know, early on. And they were all like insulted and criticized by a lot of people. And I just thought, you know, if you look at the history of this place, it's probably one of the only times people are like, hey, let's have peace talks with them. Let's not go into that triangle again and Mm -hmm. end up in the same fate as everybody else. And and sure enough, some people have come to their senses and and, and tried initiating sort of peace talks. But You did an interview with JSource Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that that you always do a lot of research before Mm -hmm. an assignment. How exactly do you prepare? Because in a conflict situation, there are always all bets are off contingencies, Mm -hmm. which it seems that you've been through throughout. Mm -hmm. Uh, How what parts of your preliminary research have you found to be the most valuable in terms of your own safety, your Mm -hmm. own planning, how to get some level of accessibility? Yeah. So I think I think. Something over the years that I had kind of that, that surprised anyone who knows about sort of what what Kandahar as a province and those districts are. Many people are always, for people in the know, are always very surprised at kind of all the places I went to consecutively over five years and spent months and months and months in. And you know, of course, there were some close calls, but overall, I came out you know physically pretty intact. Um, and I think what it really comes down to is just, you know, basic respect and researching about everybody in that place as much as possible and learning, learning about the small things. Everybody wants to learn about the big things. Everybody goes for the big things. It's the obvious thing to go for. You know, the first thing everybody talks about is Pashtun Wali, you know, this ancient code where I could walk in and say, hey, give me Pashtun Wali. And suddenly 
even if I ask the Taliban that, they're going to put me in the house and protect me. Well, you know, it, it, that is such a simplistic way of looking at everything over there. And I think that um, this might sound really simple, but if you're just nice to people and you respect, even if they're the most opposite uh, cultural or political beliefs than yours, if you just sort of, at least in the in initial dialogue, I'm not there to debate. See, I'm, I'm, I don't get into fights. I'm there to get into a talk. Um, I like engaging people in conversation, whether it's, you know, insurgents or, or Western military soldiers. I'm not there to have a debate and put my beliefs on them. That's not what I do. Um, I'm here to engage in dialogue, intellectual and conceptual dialogue and sort of reaching a mutual end that, that makes everybody sort of happy because we all want to live happy lives, whether, whether it's us here in this interview, the Taliban, you know, the Taliban don't want to destroy Afghanistan. They want it to cohere, you know, they, they, they have an interest in, 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 in wanting it to, to remain as, as, you know, Afghanistan has always been. Uh, a weak state, but a very strong nation. And I think that, you know, if you, you do the math, like say, let's relate it to Canada, and the United States, Afghanistan's much older than us. They've been around a, a lot longer. And I think that people tend to simplify what Afghans are and sort of the, what the Taliban is. And they're very, very intelligent, you know, and let's say, let, let me just, I'll give a couple examples of research. Um, I think that learning how to understand sort of, uh, now I say jihadi, uh, sort of propaganda, looking at pictures and understanding what you're seeing when, say you see a video, you know, I, I was able to get some videos from a friend who went to Quetta and just watch what they do. Uh, understand them as human beings, not, not some uh, abbreviation that the military gives them. Uh, and understand why they're fighting, you know, there's little, tall, you know, small things like, so if you see footage of U.S. soldiers, Canadian soldiers going on patrol, they got flags on their sleeves. You know, if you can watch a lot of sort of Taliban uh, footage, when the camera comes to some of them, they point their finger in the air. Well, that doesn't mean I'm number one. It means they're pointing to God. You know, it sort of says w what some of their motivations are for fighting and who they're fighting for, or what they're fighting for. And I think that you need to connect to people on the wavelength that, that they're seeing and experiencing and living in the world. So there's sort of that human connection that, there's a, there is no bridge between you and them a lot of times, and you need to build that bridge. It's about, you know, sometimes I'm not defending anything that sort of anyone does here. I'm just here to collect information, put it into something that I think opens dialogue from all sides. I think it's important to see war from every side. You know, uh, you know making a documentary film right now about my time in Kandahar, what's come to me is, you know, only until you reach inside yourself and understand your own humanity is inhumanity revealed. You know, if you go to just try and understand the inhumanity, you're never going to get it because you're not going to personally connect to that. And the reason I mention that is about building a bridge and understanding people. Um, it's like the Nietzsche quote, you know, not to be cliche, but it's like when you stare into the abyss, make sure the abyss doesn't stare back at you. It's like when you're doing something that you feel like, at least relative to what I'm talking about, that you feel like could be for the greater good, like having a talk, having a dialogue or intellectual discussion. Don't become the thing, the evil thing that you're, 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 you're covering or watching. Don't become that. So it's, it's about not getting drawn into that. It's, but it's a, it, you can still have a dialogue with it. So I think that um, one thing is, is in, it's very, very important 
is it's not just about saying salam alaikum, you know, and you know, <laughs> the standard hello. It, there's many more deeper layers in that, you know. I think it's about sitting down with people and saying, hey, you know, I, I do want to have a, a chai with you. I want to have a, let's talk, you know, and understanding sort of there's go areas and no go areas. And, and I mean, that's very complex to get into and sort of what you talk about. But when I think if you sit down with any culture or if someone sits down with you and they're reporting on you, I think it's always respected when you know things and that you've put the time and the energy to understand you know, and it's about understanding. And I think that a lot of people come in there and have their own ideas about putting another culture's uh, views on them. And, and sort of this causes conflict. And I think that it's not the way to start a conversation with anyone. Uh, and I think that conversation is always a good thing, no matter who you're talking to, as long as it's conversation and sort of the bullets aren't flying. So uh, I think that's that's step one. Um, you know, I'm a photographer, so there's this big black machine I put in front of my face with a lens and it's a little confrontational when you aim it at people. And I think that, you know, it used to be that you could go to places in different parts of the world and be a photographer and they were like, oh, okay, don't, don't, don't touch the journalist. But, you know, I think, those I think saying, are over. yeah, all those times are very much <laughs> over. Yes. Uh, unfortunately. Um, but you know, I think a lot of sort of younger journalists and, and people in the media don't realize that as much as it's gone to an extreme now, say like in Syria and Iraq, uh, especially with what's going on there, but this really goes back to sort of the U.S. wars, I say U.S., U.S. and sort of Cold War era wars in Central America. You know, Central America's where journalists were started you know, clearly being targeted, going back to the 80s, you know, El Salvador, Nicaragua. And then kind of, you know, after that, it, it really spread to, outside of the odd single event, it spread to the Balkans in the, the 90s. And this is where sort of state actors were like, yes, I will give a reward if you kill a journalist for me. And then it just kind of went downhill from there. But, um but, you know, I, I, uh, I just saw a report, and I can't think of his name. He's a legendary reporter, somewhere from Central Europe, who just did the first inside report on ISIS. Well, the, oh, the, first, yeah. the first Westerner. To Western, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, sorry. Thank you for the correction. Western, yes. Sorry about that. Um, first Western, which is huge. I mean, it's anybody reporting at this point. doesn't matter where you're from. You're a target with... with it seems with them if you're a journalist. But I think the big fear is, and I faced this when I covered the drug war in Mexico, is they, they meaning sort of the, the non-state actors or, or groups that you're trying to document or photograph or interview, fear that you are a spy. This is, this is and I don't know how this started or, you know, if, if government agents started posing as journalists. I mean, there have been many cases like Al-Qaeda when they killed Masood, poses journalists. But I think sort of it got to the point where even in Mexico, I'd been pretty much taken to task by gang members ready to kill me until they felt like, okay, this guy is not a DEA agent. He's not with the FBI. He's not with the CIA. You know, they took out their iPhone and researched me right in front of me as okay. they sort of deliberated, I'm guessing, maybe taking me out to the desert and making me disappear, you know. So uh, it, I, I think 
you know, the, the photography part is, is very complicated. So, uh, it, it, it continues to be a very big challenge and, and I'm not, I'm not doing it investigatively, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in some ways, you know, I try and approach it like an artist cause I did go to art school and I do feel like, at least for the way I do things, I think that there is a value with many different types of reporting representation. I think that I, I bring aesthetics into things. So I need extra time and extra space to take the kind of photographs I do. The goal being to draw people in who have completely ignored the issue, you know, especially back sort of in the public sphere of seeing or understanding or for the most part, forgetting wars in other countries. You know, it'd be funny, you know, I would come back to Canada, the United States during that period from 06 to 2010 covering Kandahar. And I swear it was like, you know, the countries at war, the nations at the shopping mall, that that was kind of a quote I heard somewhere. And I felt like it really was true. And, uh, uh, so it, it, it continues to be a challenge and, I, and I'm not quite sure how I actually did it. I, I did do, I had this little Russian panoramic camera, you know, I was working in Kandahar city for a while in 2010. I did a lot of extensive sort of street photography and I, I hid this panoramic camera and it had a lens with a little motor that moved from left to right. And if you go on my website, you see all these panoramic pictures and, uh, I didn't need to focus it. So I would, I would have it in my scarf and you know, my, my fixer, we had this setup where I would pretend to be like his mute, you know, sort of uh, assistant and he'd yell at me in public. And he, he gave me, uh, he gave me the name Mustafa and he'd yell at me. And this way I just dragged my foot. Like I had a limp and he would yell at me and tell me to get it in the car. And we had an act that we would do in parts of the city where we were afraid of Talib's being there that, um, would mostly probably hurt him before me, but we had like a little act that would give us, and I would photograph with this camera inside my scarf and I got some pretty good photographs. It, it actually quite good ones. It worked out, but you know, lots of time I'd have my finger in front of the lens or, you know, it, very, very complicated, but I have to say, I got to see some, some awesome parts of Kandahar city. I swear I would love to live there and freely walk around every day. That is my dream project with no soldiers or fighting going on that's so you know th th there are things around that but really um uh something that made th that, that again that i wasn't able to do and there are restrictions depending on who you are is being a man i have very limited access to, to women especially down in kandahar which is a little more conservative than say up in the north um nevertheless i still was able to and uh you know, the shot list of things I did not get in Kandahar is still very long. I'm always plotting some trip back there. You know, I've, I'm always like, okay, I'm going to go over here. And and it's still ongoing. There is very much a chance that I'd like to go back there again. One question I'm just curious about. Yeah. Other than photographing captured insurgents, which yeah. I know you've done, did you have any personal interaction with the Taliban? Um, Not Wait, let me see. Not knowingly, but in retrospect, I realized that at times I'd been talking to insurgents. I just didn't know. But now okay. in uh, information has come to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, that guy was an insurgent. And you know what? They crack jokes. They're, they're human beings. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not promoting them or I'm not taking them out here. I'm just saying sort of my experience. But I, I did meet with, um, in a previous trip, 2004, before I went to Afghanistan, uh, I did some stories on you know, the UNHCR had a big uh, push on 
getting Afghan refugees from the 2001-2002 invasion by the U.S., uh, getting them out of Pakistan, some Peshawar area, moving them back in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we went and did some stories, and I thought while we were there, I thought, hey, man, Peshawar, this is like – this is like the last outpost. Awesome. Like lots of agents of every kind of country happening there and lots of different things going on there. So once I shook my ISI guys who were following us around all over the place, it was like, it was like Starsky and Hutch, you know, it was really ridiculous. Um, we, we met with some uh, writers, some religious writers and book publishers in Peshawar. And, and there's some smaller ones just outside the city in the tribal regions. And, uh, it was it was pretty fascinating, you know. These guys were definitely uh, when I say I don't want to say they were insurgents because they were not armed, but you know I'd say in the bigger picture of what an insurgent is or what an insurgency requires, um, you know, there's all these sort of terms that I've found p- people in the Western militaries use, like oh, there's these Taliban's they pay them ten bucks and they go fight. But yeah. what I was meeting, what I was meeting here were um, very smart. Um, highly educated, um, philosophically uh, very engaged people who wrote religious texts and books that insurgents would come to Peshawar, especially during the colder months, and and buy books from them as inspiration for, for sort of what their beliefs were and what they were fighting for. Um, it's not that the books drove the fighting, it's the books... Uh, were a foundation to what they believed they were and what they had to do for where they lived and where they were from. And from that, they as individuals chose to fight. So I want to, I want to separate here that these are, uh, you know, very intellectually written books. They're not just get your RPG and AK-47 and fight, fight invaders. It's, it's much more complex than that. And uh, that's probably the closest I've come to actual, let's just say they were the spiritual leaders of, 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 mm-hmm what would be the insurgency? Because, you know, 2004, the Taliban's already back in Kandahar at that point. You know, no one's really paying mm-hmm. attention in the West. They're all busy in Iraq. Sorry to be sarcastic there, but the, the Taliban was already back. Uh, actually, a lot of them never really left. Um, but, uh, so, uh, I, I did meet a lot of captured Taliban and I did make a point to, uh, when, I, when I did photography, Photograph casualties of all sides, especially insurgents, because I just found that there were a lot of news reports and there was no insurgents in the reports ever. They're detainees. Yeah. And, and I found that – and something I want to make clear, and I've gotten to some de- debates with – and I'm not putting the two of you in this, but with academics about how detainees are photographed. And you're following the embed rules by not photographing their face. It's like, no. If you do your research – and this is some of the research I would do. If you do research on on – there are very clear, detailed list of things uh, soldiers are ordered to follow when they capture uh, uh, someone and make them a detainee. And I think what my interest always is when I photograph detainees is the kind of stress position they're in. If they're uh, using uh, earplugs and, and covering their eyes to disorient them, that's what I'm photographing. I'm not following any embed rules. That's, you know... For the most part, embed rules, when, when you read them, are, you know, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of journalists failed and, and fell into this cliche uh, uh, criticism of the embed system because they just weren't very good war correspondents. They were not experienced at it. I think when, that. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to finish the thought. It's just, I felt, you know, what happened is, is the war went start going on for so long that the experienced people who knew how to maneuver through, whether they're at home covering the government and their restrictions or in a war zone and the military's covering restrictions, there's always ways in anything to get the kind of photographs of the reporting you want to get if you're very good at it. But what happened is, is that the war went on for so long and the rotations became so exhausting that the really experienced people would need like six extra months off before they would rotate back or they would get wounded or hurt or they would just get burned out and moved on, move on. And I think what happened is, is in between people from all the different news companies started putting, and I know that this, they did this because my friends went, uh, uh, they would put emails out like, hey, who wants to go on a rotation? So people who had never covered a war many times would end up there with with good intentions, but they did not have the experience. And what you started getting is uh, people who did not know how to work around the system or or push hard enough to get what they wanted when they were reporting there. So um, I don't necessarily think the embed system is a great thing or a bad thing. I think it's what you make of it. How often are the embed rules uh, re-examined or updated? So I think uh, when we say embed rules, especially with there have been a lot of books and a lot of, uh, uh, say, essays, written papers have written about embeds. So I'm going to speak specifically about Afghanistan because what went on in Iraq was a very, very, you know, people apply the embed experience of Iraq sometimes and just do a sort of a blanket over every war in the world. And I think that uh, it all depends what country you're with as well. You know, the, for a long time, the Americans did not like the Canadian embed system because they felt it was too liberal and too open. But then again, there are things you can do in the American embed system that uh, you could not do in the Canadian embed system. And, and so what it is, like when you say a review, uh, Overall, they kind of stayed the same. And the basic, the first rule was one was don't do anything that's going to get anyone hurt or killed. Now, I don't want to do that regardless of the embed rules. You know, that's like 80% or something like that. I don't know the exact percentage numbers. That's about 80% or something like that. Um, then the next little bit is, you know, if you're going to go on a combat operation, you're not going to be like out of shape, you know, passing out while the while the soldiers are on an attack. And if you are, they can kick you out and you're going to bring your own stuff that they don't have to supply you with stuff. You're going to bring your own sleeping bag and equipment and you're going to take care of it. And you'll be self-sufficient. There, there are some rules around detainees. Uh, some rules I kind of, it's not the rules. Some principles are smart. Like, you know, if you photograph a detainee's face, I'm not worried about sort of the Geneva convention or anything like that. They sort of always seem to quote the Geneva convention in the embed rules. You can put someone's face in, 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 in publication and they may not even be an insurgent and you, they could be released later and then, you know, tell them, I wonder, Hey, are you actually an undercover agent for them? They're pretending you're a detainee. So like you can actually get people killed if you're not very careful, but you know, showing the face, there's issues around that and there's issues around the wounded, but I have photographs of all that stuff. I have photographs of everything and I published it all or it's all on my website and it's all about understanding, uh, 
sort of where where I don't want to say they're holes because they've you know the military is they're smart too they've thought it all through it's just war is not black and white it's it's lots of shades of gray so to speak there's a lot of sort of complicated things that you could never have planned for um, so in terms of, overall the embed rules were were there's some minor adjustments here and there but overall um, uh, I'd say it's, it was a lot better than the first Gulf War. I did not cover the first Gulf War, but from what I've read, the Axis was almost zero in that war. So um, it, I think the important thing is training. You know, I think a lot of journalists went for their first time to a war and they were so overwhelmed and they might have had a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome, if I could call it that, where – they sort of identified with the people they were covering a little too much and never were able to take a step back and say, hey, wait a second, I may be with them. That doesn't mean I have to make them look good. It's about just reporting neutrally here and, and reporting what's important, what's in the public's interest. That's kind of the way I always look at it. So, And understanding what war crimes are and that sometimes a war crime is something very, very subtle and simple and you have to understand – what people are doing all the time and don't get caught up on whether those troops are from your country or an allied country or a country you like or anything like that. So I think it's about looking at everybody as an individual, you know, for, that you've met for the first time. Um, if I could kind of transition a little into, yeah, yeah. to, to the, the, you know, the, um, the concept newspapers that you sent to me, um, oh, yeah. it kind of relating to, to what you, um, what you were just talking about in a way. I yeah. mean, you know, hearing you talk about Kandahar and Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that, you know, you've been to a lot of places and you learned a lot about it. But then when you look at, um, you know, to take the example from uh, from Guantanamo, you have this this concept newspaper, which yeah. for, for listeners will kind of describe it as, you know, it's, it's like um, uh, a kind of... Uh, you know, broadsheet newspaper or something like that with yes. printed images on, on uh -huh. both sides and you kind of un unfold it out. Um, but, you know, there's there's almost no text in this. There's none yes. of this kind of rich context that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or, you know, to, to take another example, you know, you had this series of photos um, of kind of marine portraits. Um, yes. Which... Um, you know, again, isn't isn't uh, a kind of a you know a new idea. It's it's something which mm -hmm. you know people have been photographing. You know, portraits of soldiers at war for for decades. Yes. Um, what's what's your relationship? What or how how does the relationship between this kind of rich context and the uh -huh. images, which you know, on the one hand, you 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 have this information, yet in you know in the concept newspaper. For, for for Guantanamo, let's say, yeah. you know, if someone if an alien was coming down, and just just kind of picked it up. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, I like that. I, I like that way of looking at things. Actually. They're 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 kind of missing that. Or, or how how yeah? How do you think about that that relationship? Well, uh, say say like the marine portraits specifically, and I'm glad you brought that up. And the the two concept new papers I've done, and so for people who don't know the, you know, I I, I cover the drug war in Mexico, and I just felt like there are these two camps watching coverage of the drug war in Mexico. And there was one side who were like, there is more to Mexico, you know, that, than the drug war. And all you guys do is show dead bodies and violence. Well, Mexico has a vibrant economy. They're part of the G20 and we have great resorts. Then there's the other opposite side who is like, 
hey, man, never mind all that stuff. You guys are using that to cover up the war. You know, 100,000 dead since 2006, over 100 people in the media or journalists killed. It's, it's almost like a Syria next door to the United States with a functioning economy. And uh, I just felt like every, every time I covered it, it was like, you know, it was like this polarized two sides. And I just felt like it was about how people see or don't see the war. Because, you know, I would get back to the United States or Canada and I would tell people, wow, you know, 100,000, over 100,000 people have been killed in Mexico since 2006, drug war. And people are staring at me with their jaw on the ground like, no, they, they can't believe it. And here's a war where the, the funding or the product or the, 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 the drive behind the war is getting drugs into mostly U.S. cities okay. and Canadian cities. Uh, so um, I just felt like after, I don't know, 23 years of being a photographer, I guess it must have been 22 then, I just felt like you know, I, had, I, had, a, I had a fellowship at a, a think tank in, in Washington, D.C. called the New America Foundation and it's a nonpartisan think tank that explores concepts and pretty much ideas. It's about ideas around uh, U.S. policy. And I just felt like it, it's not about going in and giving this context, actually, which, which you talk about, which I, I think that's valuable as well. But it's about what context are you being given? It's about seeing and not seeing. And I just thought I wanted to challenge everybody, including myself, on this. And it started with that first newspaper, Meet of Mexico, and then it came with the next newspaper, and I have a few more planned. The next one was Guantanamo Operational Security Review. Is It's about uh, uh, what you're shown and what, what things are put together and shown to you and what things are not shown to you. So like say a photographer, you know, especially in the digital age now, it used to be you'd have a roll of 36 exposure film. Well, now you have a memory card. You can shoot like, you know, a thousand photos or even more. It's kind of ridiculous. So you shoot a thousand photographs and I do what we call editing. So I will edit that down and, you know, just for conversation's sake, I'll give an editor 15 pictures at, at a publication. They get the 15, they look at that and they publish maybe one or two in the print copy and then they put the 15 in the slideshow. Well, where are, what happens to the other 985 mm -hmm. photographs? And I just felt like, you know, here I can't pretend to, um, be Mr. Idealistic that the media is showing it in the proper light. We, we, we try. We, you know, we at least have a public accountability with many organizations have a code of ethics at least. But then I just thought, well, hey, curators at museums do that. So like all Western art out of Europe during several centuries of the Renaissance, it was like promotional campaign for the you know religion. Only one religion pretty much. Uh, it's all Christian Catholic based out of the Vatican mostly. So some of the most amazing, we call it amazing pieces of art is really propaganda in a lot of ways. And then, you know, if we go to editors at newspapers and magazines, which way do they lean? And so which version of the story are they showing us? And I just thought, Hey, we're doing the same thing. And in an age where, uh, the PR firms and the public affairs people and governments have learned from Vietnam and the decades following up and through the 90s from the Gulf War into the embed system, you know, there, there are divisions of the U.S. military and it's all about information operations because they understand that the perception of what's happening in a war or what's going on in a war or what perception of what's not going in a war can shape the way a war is being fought or what political decisions are being accepted by the voting public. 
And that's the way, that's where the news, the concept newspaper came out of for me. It was a, it was a challenge to myself, to my colleagues and to everybody out there that if I give you a newspaper, do you understand what's going on when you look at pictures? Do you, are you just accepting it? Are you just saying yes? Cause there's so much visual noise out there. So say the most respected newspapers out there. I'm not going to pick on anyone in particular. You look through a newspaper or a website, there is advertising. So here I could have an article on a starving country with people dying in genocide and right beside it's a Rolex ad. What are the ethics of that? And I think that when I made these newspapers, I took all the ads away. I took all the text and it was just about looking at photographs and there is a caption for context and a little paragraph on the back of the newspaper that sort of gives a little deeper concept and explains the concept of the newspaper. So I, I that that sort of, I hope that wasn't too long, explanation of how that happened. So I did it with the drug war. So with the first newspaper, on one side of the page, there were all photographs of dead bodies and drugs. On the other side was all daily life in Mexico. And you could re-edit it and get rid of the bodies and the drugs. Or you could make it all bodies and drugs and it's all just sensational reporting. And so with Guantanamo, the one difference in the paradigm of that newspaper was, you know, I, I started going on these media tours in Guantanamo that were the military, U.S. military was offering. And you, you usually arrive on a Monday, you're there for two days of photography or reporting, you leave on Thursday. So every day after you report, and here, what the key thing is, is they don't delete writing. You know, they don't say, hey, you can't write that. But they do delete photographs. And I think that, you know, the, the, what's important is in the newspaper of Guantanamo, it has nothing to do with the photographs that I got out. There is no best photograph of Guantanamo because I think that all the issues surrounding Guantanamo uh, are things you can't really photograph. They're just representations of people, what people are guessing has happened there, whatever it presents. But what's important, I felt like I wanted to create a document that froze in time in history that the, the government or the military had something in place where they were deleting photos. And that newspaper's point is about how someone controlled picture taking. And it has also to do with the contemporary technology of picture taking because you can't shoot anything but digital at Guantanamo. You can't delete film. So, you know, here we can, if you look at the file numbers that I've listed in all the pages of the newspaper, it, it, it's about missing information. And I think the point of that paper is about the photos we don't see. So we got to imagine, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, it's a funny connection to writing now because you got to imagine the pictures from what you read about because all the photos that I'm showing you are only ones approved by the government. And so, in, go ahead. In your, in your photograph, morning guard meeting in Camp 4, yeah. there, is, there is a frontal shot of a passing detainee. Yeah. How, did, how did the operational security review process miss that one? Or did they see it? Well, they, they did see it. And, and here's the thing is uh, uh, you sign a bunch of documents there. Again, you know, it, we've gotten to some really complicated ter territory. And we used to be able to just go take photographs of things decades ago. We meaning the photojournalism community. Um, I think his face is out of focus and you can't identify him. This is, you know, this is the, you know, there, there are some gray areas and, and I know that I went there enough times where I did special photo tours, which they really stopped giving those after I went. There was myself and a colleague that used to go a lot in our photographer. Um, it, there's this like golden eight period of, of access relative to the past and current access there is, um, I think it's about, it's, it was blurry enough and you can't really tell who he is. And I think that's how, you know, three quarter from behind, I did reflections. I started sort of, 
as I went, every time I went making a little checklist, like, okay, how can I, you know, it's about experience and just building every time. Okay. When I go on this trip, I'm after this photo. I'm after that photo. I want to go to this wing of the prison. And I would always ask for a very ridiculous, like they would say, oh, hey, you know, you want, you want to come back and do a tour? I'm like, yeah. They said, oh, can I send you a want list of what I want to do? They're like, sure. And I would always, <laughs> I know it would get turned down. I'd say, portrait of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. <laughs> and I think that they laughed as loud as you just did when I said that. Because I know I'm never going to get it. But I would sort of make very ridiculous requests and then it would trickle down to the things I really wanted were these insig- what seemed relative to the big ones as insignificant ones. And sometimes, you know, I, I would, it's back to research. I would try and contact and interview every, uh, uh, every single uh, journalist who had gone through their experience or unexperience. And a lot of times they would just keep saying the same things as the same repetition of layers of sort of information experiences. And every once in a while someone would say, Oh, I went to this. Or I saw that and I'm like, oh, okay, I never heard about that. And so I, you know, it's, it's just about basic research. And I think that I'm not sure what they're teaching in the schools. And I don't want to sound like one of those older guys like, oh, they're not doing it the way we used to do it. It's not about that. It's, I do think that we're, especially now we're in this age where everybody wants to send a text message and get it that fast. And I think that that's a mistake. I think some of the best reporters out there, both young and old, do great research and don't leave any stone unturned. And again, it's like I said earlier, it's the small things, those small details are sometimes the most revealing uh, things of all. Like, you know, going back to when I, when I was in working in travel regions in Pakistan, I remember I was talking to those religious book publishers and they, they went on a little sort of expanded sort of oration about, you know, the insurgency and, and, and sort of why we're fighting the West and supporting sort of insurgencies in the area. And I just thought, let me play counterpoint here. And I said, so, you know, why, why are Western troops evil? And the guy said, when I hold my hand up against the sun, the shadows only on them, but the light still shines on me. And I thought, Wow. Uh-huh. that's heavy, man. <laughs> this is not some dumb guy. Like this is, you know, th- this is, has a lot of history in it as well. Sort of mystical stuff. And uh, it, it's about knowing the little things about doing the research. And I, I didn't say evil. I, I used a different word at the time, but I, I worded it in a way where I was not, I was not clashing with him. I was looking for him to enlighten me. And that's the way I kind of asked the question. And this is small, subtle things that, I think people really need to focus on sort of for this kind of field work. I have to say that your photo of the interrogation room is one of, you know, looking through your galleries, Mm -hmm. it's one of the most disturbing shots, even comparing it to, you know, horrific injuries. Mm -hmm. And I, in a way I'm amazed that that got out because it's so stark. Yeah, and I saw that photo prior to the torture report being released. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a simple, it's a seemingly simple shot, but with so many implications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, that was an accident getting that photograph. And, and here's the thing, there's nothing in the rules that w- that said I could not photograph a chair. Like, they're, they're just... 
you know, all the rules are around, you know, sometimes when they would delete my photos, you know, I, I, I left with most of what I could get and, and the access is good, but it's not like I get to sit in the cell and have tea with the, with the detainees. Like, I mean, this isn't, you can't even talk to them. Uh, so with that, that photo, um, it, it was a cell at the end, you know, the, the, there, there's, there's only really two, I don't know who you, whoever thought of calling them camps really does not know their history back to World War II. Not the best PR move to call them camps. But anyway, moving on from that, uh, that's a big detail. Um, but anyway, the two camps, five and six, they are, they are um, hard, you know, brick structure, so to speak. Um, and they're, they're, they're based on the panopticon, you know, where there's like a circle in the middle and there's wings off the prison, kind of like a spoked oh. wheel. And sometimes when you cover something and it's about long-term, you know, I, I went to Guantanamo a lot from 07 to 2010 and you just start learning, like asking, Hey, can I go, you know, what's down this hallway? And they were like, nothing, you're not going down that way or Hey, okay, sure. You want to see down here? And I think that, um, uh, there's this one great photo tour that will never happen again. I, I think myself and another photographer from the Associated Press, we hold the record for longest operational security reviews. I think at Guantanamo, I think our names are like inscribed on the wall there. Um, most are like an hour or two. We did two all-nighters. And we just learned to dialogue with them. And that's really what it's all about is – Learning how to, how to have the conversation about photographs that you really want to keep now. Photographs, like of any prison that's going to show a secret lock or the distance of the prison to the water or security stuff, those photos are useless to me anyway. I really don't care about them. You know, I mean, I, maybe I'd like to have them as, you know, I do these big edits of 40, 50 photographs for like book or internet slideshow size. But um, it's photos like that. And I just thought, okay, well, I can't see what's going on here or what people are doing, but the environment can tell me what's going on. You know, it's kind of like walking up to what might be a minefield and you're like, why is that AK 47 in the field? And no one's working in this field. No one just leaves a gun in the middle of the field. And I'm like, hey, there's a dead body over there. And no one leaves a dead body behind. You're like, there's a big hole in the ground. I think this is a minefield. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of like learning all those little things and I just thought, well, maybe there's some environmental trauma in this prison. And I can talk about what went on the prison by the walls and the chairs and where the people were. It's kind of like an archaeological, archaeological site, you know. I just saw that chair and I thought, whoa. I'm like, <laughs> I was clicking the shutter so fast. I'm like, okay, this, is, <laughs> this, this says it all, you know. And it's a picture of a chair. That really, uh, you know, okay, there's some marks on the wall and I think people need to go to my website and look at the photograph um, to understand what we're talking about. But it is about that because that chair was designed for a human being and a human being sat on it. And the way that chair sits against the wall and, and, and in context with the handcuff on the floor, you don't even know it's Guantanamo Bay. And any, anybody who's, who's even just, you know, very simply educated knows that something bad happened in that chair. Mm-hmm. so uh, that was kind of one of my successes and it's about sort of thinking conceptually and what I started looking at everybody wanted to get photos of the detainees They're like oh my god there's a detainee over there hurry up and get the pictures you know shit I'm going to show his face they're going to delete those you know this is every journal and I just started thinking 
I always think of, and this is not politically, I always think, okay, sometimes you got to go left to go right. You know, I'm always thinking conception. I learned this in art school, actually. Think outside the box. How else can I do this? And it's really split second and you get spontaneous, especially, you know, because Guantanamo is like, okay, 20 minutes in this part, an hour here, 10 minutes. I mean, you're just like this marathon of photography. And uh, I started thinking of the environment telling the story, the walls, the chairs, and 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 so it was re- repeat trips, kind of like what I, how I did what I did in Kandahar. You just keep going back over and over and over. Sometimes it's right in front of you, and you, you have to learn to see it. Even the arrow to pointing to the direction of Mecca, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of chipped, needs repainting, and you yep. get a sense of the passage of time. Yep. Um, so I, I thought that image was also very powerful, even though it's just an arrow, an arrow on a cinder block wall. Well, it, there's some sort of metaphors in there. It's kind of like, yes, it's for Mecca, but it's pointing at a wall. So it's like, you can't see the whole Guantanamo newspaper. It, it, it's kind of like how Francis Ford Coppola, the filmmaker used, you know, apocalypse now as a stage to really talk about the heart of darkness or the darkness of, mm-hmm. of what all can exist inside of us. It, it's kind of, for me, I, I, I try and use the Guantanamo as a metaphor of what we're seeing and not seeing. And every picture, you, if you look at the newspaper, you take it apart, you look around, you can make, you could see detainees, you could not see detainees, you can see the guards, you could not see the guards, you can see more detainees or less guards or vice versa. So pretty much if you are the editor or if you are the censor, now you know, I'm playing with some serious fire here saying that a newspaper editor could be a censor, but I think they can be, you know, if you look at a lot of, Government offices, say in the U.S., like say the White House or or a lot of different places, they hire from within the news community. You know, I mean, these are what seem like probably exciting jobs to work for the White House or the Pentagon. But a lot of these photojournalists or editors were at one time or eventually moved back into the sort of journalism field. So it's all about information control, and we're all a part of that. Even the journalists are, whether we like it or not, we we can be held accountable. Hopefully. One comment I always hear about Guantanamo from a friend of mine, he'll say, well, you know, every time I see those guys on the news, they're outside kicking around a soccer ball. It's not that mm-hmm. bad. But there's never the follow-up question of why is that the image that you see on the news, you know? Um, well, think, and Yeah. Keep going. There, there is, though. I mean, the sense of control is so interwoven into how we process images now i i think i don't know i do think that the consumption of images with accessibility that we've had in the past 20 years do you think it's how great is the change and can you overcome it can how do you adapt to it well i think it's about sort of media training number one i think that you know kind of what you and i the three of us are doing right now is having a conversation about it. You know, these newspapers, whenever I publish them, I published, you know, about a thousand copies and I always try and do lectures within schools, not, not just journalism, no need to preach the converted completely, but mm-hmm. also in global affairs programs. And I, I usually do, you know, 15 to 20 university classes and I explain these concepts and like, I ask how many students look at the source of the photograph, like the bylines, the credit. So mm-hmm. is it, is it a, uh, uh, produced by a media company like say Reuters or Associated Press or some some people who are associated with journalists 
and follow co the codes of ethics of journalists or, or can it be held accountable some kind of code of ethics? Or are they handouts? Are they photographs created by government professional media personnel to shape or push the direction of, of a view or a message? And that happens a lot. You know, some of the first photographs out of Guantanamo were released by the government. Funny enough, responded to by ISIS, you know, mm -hmm. with that video of that tragic, horrific video with James mm -hmm. Foley, where they put him in an orange jumpsuit. And, and we've seen mostly still photographs of, of the ISIS guy, but it's about power, right? And I just felt like that was a seminal moment in the history of photography and journalism mm -hmm. where uh, a militant group is responding visually to a photograph released by the U.S. government and using it pretty much as, as a visual for terror to scare people. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we've really reached this, this changing turning point. You know, it used to be that militant groups would accept journalists in and we'd go in, interpret, uh, and then sort of do articles or, or photographs or photo essays and explain the movement, why they were fighting and what was going on politically, religiously. Now they don't need us. And in a lot of ways, that's, this is why we're being off because sometimes they don't like our interpretation of, of what we see and, and sort of write or photograph about them. What, what kind of work are you doing at the moment? And just uh -huh. kind of way of wrapping up, what, what kind of sure. future things do you have um, coming up or what's your big thing that you're diving into? Well, right now, um, I've had this torturous, not to be dramatic, um, but I, I can't help it, torturous kind of film that I can see the finish line on. It's called Kandahar Journals. So I kept I kept a series of journals, mostly around 2009 and 2010 when I was in Kandahar. Yeah. And so uh, for about three and a half years, we've been working on uh, a story that can be laid underneath sort of all the video and writing and photographs I took in Kandahar um, as sort of a dialogue about the war in Kandahar. You know, it, it talks about a couple of things. It goes back to that theme I mentioned earlier about sort of understanding your own humanity, which helps reveal the inhumanity of, of, of war, trauma and violence. And a little bit about sort of Kandahar being this forgotten front, you know, like whenever I would see the news, I'd be down in Kandahar understanding this. And, and I think Alex, you know, the significance of what Kandahar is in the minds of Afghans and the insurgency and how for so long it was kind of like this forgotten key place in, in sort of what it could have been for the war if they would have just dialogued down there a little more and, you know, invested a little more down there, say with jobs. But um, so I'm working on the film. Um, I have a couple of books I'm working on. I have my next newspaper. I can't reveal what it is because, you know, I always want it to be a surprise, but I'm working on part three. I am being offered assignments in various uh, countries in the Middle East. Don't want to reveal that for my own security either, but I think people can guess kind of a few on the list. And uh, let's see. The film is pretty much eating up most of my time right now. So I'm um, focusing on that. And I'd like to go back to Kandahar. That's kind of a weekly review of understanding what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I'll be honest, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 45 years old and I'm kind of uh, uh, needing a break. It's been like nonstop for 23 years of shooting and editing. Um, I have a very big archive. Um, I'm imagining different things from my archive from Kandahar that I can publish um, and make accessible to the public. 
because I think that um, um, any way I can engage people in dialogue, again, it's all about talking for me from for all sides. Um, I am hoping to do a project if I can find funding. Um, um, actually, this is new on the history and contemporary use of visuals by militant groups. Sort of how, yeah. And I, 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 I all I need is a, you know, I don't need a lot of money for it, but it's about collecting actual objects. And uh, you know, from for what I, I don't want to reveal too much of the, some of the unique research I've sort of helped me find things, but it's very, very fascinating. Sort of who are the artists and the designers who make like some of the artwork for these groups? I mean, it goes back decades, way before what's going on the wars that we're seeing now with jihadi groups. But uh, that that's something I'd really like to work on. Is uh, and I would love to interview the people who make the art. You know, and sort of what they're thinking, what their ideas are, right? So, so that's kind of what I'm working on right now as well. So I got, you know, I got my hands full here. Kandahar is like crack. You know, <laughs> the more you're there, you're like, oh my god, I need to go to that. That I need to go to those pomegranate fields one more, ten more times. Yeah. You know, and I remember going to Tarnak Farms, and it just, it was so fascinating to think that that was, um, uh, not to mythologize it or make it legend, but. It's pretty famous, you know, Al-Qaeda and Bin Laden had their training camp there. And we know what it all is. But at the time, a lot of the guys you're training there had no idea. Al-Qaeda was a secret organization. So it was like this top – I don't even know what's happened to it now. I don't even know if it's still standing or if they tore it down or renovated it. But to be be there and understand that this pomegranate tree outside of Bin Laden's compound is what he ate from and just sort of like – it's just – it's fascinating history. But, you know, you pull – someone off the street in you know downtown urban or rural usa and yeah. say tarnak farms to them what does this say to you and they'll say what <laughs> like i got my potatoes from there maybe <laughs> not to make fun of you know anyone here but uh, you know it's, it's no i mean it's, it's, it's not about making fun of people it's about you know how you know the war wasn't really about the war or, you know, it was about, yeah. it took on a logic of its own. Yeah. And I just think yeah. that, uh, uh, again, I want to try and continue to make sort of archives of photographs and, and all the materials I have, the film will be one of those and it just continue outreach as much as possible. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of what I'm, that's a lot of things actually I'm working on. Trying to spend some time with my family too, you know. It's funny after I cover the war, something that's become amazing is my mom, who was born in 1934, has all these stories about uh, the partisans up in from northeast Italy up in the mountains. There are a lot of partisans up there. It's perfect again, perfect territory for an insurgency, and it was about the partisans fighting the Nazis. And of course, uh, you know the, the the partisans. And and I'm not saying anyone's the Nazis in the comparison here, but the partisans would attack the Nazis. The Nazis would go up in these villages and say, okay, where are they? And my mom would be like, oh, I don't know. Meanwhile, she knew exactly who they were. And it was like what I was seeing in Afghanistan. I'm not trying to say anyone's a Nazi here, but, you know, it's it's about sort of the, the, the deeper layers and metrics about how these wars happen. It's, of course, my, my grandfather hid food for the partisans to fight the, German, the, the Nazis. So. <laughs> so I would see that, you know, there'd be an IED attack and the, U.S. or Canadian soldiers come to the village. You're like, who planted that ID? Well, we have no idea. Yeah. You know, and it was kind of like, so it, it, it's it's fascinating to sort of hear, you know, about things that my mom. You know, people. I think trauma is passed on. 
You know, and I think that this is sort of what's happened is trauma is passed on and people want to understand what that trauma is. I think that people become restless until they do understand what it is.